Okay, welcome to the church that gathers at Bethel Baptist. So the church becomes the church when we show up. It's not the church when we're not here, right? And we gather because Jesus first gathered us from our sins. Jesus saw us in our sins and he gathered us to himself because he died on a cross. He rose again for his glory and for our salvation. So Christians are gathering people. That's just what we do. We don't know anything Else. And so if you've showed up and you don't know what's going on, that's what's happening. It's a gathering of local people who love Jesus, who have been gathered by the Good Shepherd, and we gather because he gathered us. And now we have a mandate to gather other people because we believe that God so loved the entire world that whoever believes in him might not perish but might be saved. So you're in a gathering of whosoever's wanting to gather other whosoever's that they might be saved. If you're a guest and you said, what did, I, what did I walk into? Just know that we've been praying for you uh, and we believe that the same Jesus that's changed our lives can change yours. And, and I would say, thank God, if he can change my life, he can change yours today. So we're journeying in um, the book of Judges and I forgot we have a lot of people that watch online. So for our guests and everyone watching online, can we just let them know how thankful we are that... They're there. We have some friends that battle cancer or that are going through cancer treatment. They can't come here physically, but they watch consistently online. And every time I call them, they say, thank you guys for not forgetting about us. So that makes a difference. Judges chapter 4. And we're going to look again at this cycle. We, we see in Judges 4.1, Judges is in the Old Testament after Joshua, before Ruth, before Psalms, kind of in that area. We see over and over again in Judges, like we see in verse 1 of chapter 4, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They again did evil. So you say, well, when did they do evil the first time? In chapter 3. When did they do evil before that? In chapter 2. After Joshua died, it all fell apart. And it's a reminder that if your faith is based upon someone else that's living, eventually they will, they will die and your faith will crumble. Your faith must be in someone who lives forever, not in someone who lives earthly. And so they again did evil. I, I say that Judges is a broken record stuck on repeat. It's over and over and over and over again. It's the cycle that I call sword. Sin, people sin, and then God brings wrath, that's the W. Then there's oppression from an outside source, the Moabites, the Canaanites in this case. Then you have the people saying, if we repent, God will hear. And sometimes it takes 18 years for the people to call out to God. And church, here's here's such the beauty of the gospel. When, When God's people repent and cry out, what happens? God hears and delivers them. So if you've been waiting 18 years to cry out to God, He will hear you today. And if you've been waiting 18 days, He will hear you today. And we say, well, what is this evil right here in Judges chapter 4? They did evil. What is it? It's not defined. But, but I would say it's simply this. God's people looked inward or outward for the one place that they should have looked upward. That sin, it's God saying, look at me, I'm the only thing that can satisfy you. And we look around and say, well, if I had this and this, 
maybe I would be complete. Or we say, well, I can just, I'll pick myself up by my bootstraps. I'll do it myself. And sin is this. Evil is this. Don't look inward. Don't look outward. Look upward for the only thing that can satisfy. Only God alone can fulfill your deepest need. So again, the people are doing evil. And with that, let's read the rest of the story. You say, whoo, it's already getting tough. Verse 1, Judges 4 again. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. And if you, if you want to know what that's about, you can go online and watch Pastor Jared's sermon from last week. He, he preached on Ehud and how God raised him up as a deliverer for his people. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived at Heroshet of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. So last week we see that God's people are oppressed for 18 years. They failed to get the memo, and now they're oppressed for 20 years before God delivers them. Let's pause and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we confess to you right now that we are again people, that we find ourselves, Lord, again and again doing what is evil. And Lord, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't know. Father, here's the one thing that we do know, is that we worship a holy God. And the only hope that we have in life or in death is that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you. Father, would you stir our hearts that we would not look outward or inward, but that we would look upward this morning. That we would not be self-sufficient or reliant upon other people, but that we would be Savior-sufficient. Lord, we cannot understand one eternal truth without your Spirit illuminating our eyes. And so we ask again that you would be faithful to your people. That you would open our hearts and our eyes to know you and you alone. Because we see you in your word that is inspired, living, and active. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not stopped speaking to your people. So speak again this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So let's jump in, right? Verse 2. They did what was evil again in the sight of the Lord. So God delivered them. God sold them. God handed them over to really the desires of their hearts. Now that word so is a tiny conjunction. But who could imagine how much that it would really include? People do evil and God said, okay, you asked for it, so I'm going to give you what you asked for. And it's the reminder here that there is nothing, there's no sin or transgression in our lives that does not have some type of consequence. There are no white lies in the kingdom of heaven. They are all dark and they are all an affront to the holiness of God. The holiness that we sing about. You, you want to know what's white and bright and light? God's holiness. And our sins are the opposite. 
So God gave them over to the desires of their heart. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And I, we can add today that the wages of every sin is death. Every sin that we, that we add into our life is poison. It tastes sweet going down. But it is destroying you. It's destroying me. It's bitter to the core. So God hands them over to a man named King Jabin of Canaan. Now, Canaanites were a loose coalition, but apparently this king rose to the top and he gathered everyone together. Now, for our astute biblical scholars, you would say, well, the king didn't gather everyone together. Who sent King Jabin to rule over the Israelites? Whether... The king knew it or not, God was raising him up. And he was actually ruling at a place called Hatsor. It's just north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, today, it is the largest ruins in modern Israel. So if you go to Israel, you will walk around this, these many hectares of, of Hatsor. It's the largest mound of ruins in the area today. And if the king wasn't bad enough, he had a commander named Sisera. And if, if you're looking at me today and you're saying, well, I don't know where that came from, you're not alone. Scholars don't know either. We know it's not a Canaanite name. We know it's not a Hebrew name. Most scholars would say that Sisera is either a Philistine or Hittite. Why do I tell you that? Because what we know is Sisera was a mercenary. He was a professional killer. And he would hire his services out to the highest bidder, right? You pay me money, I'll, I will, I'll maintain the 900 chariots and we'll fight. And that's exactly what is happening. Sisera had 900 chariots in his disposal. So when you think chariots, I want you to think Apache helicopters. This is modern warfare. Israel did not have a lot of iron ore. They had to go to the west coast, to the Philistine area to get iron ore, or to the north. So if you didn't have modern warfare, you were at a disadvantage. But here's what we know about chariots. They, they weren't like tanks. Right? Tanks, you can, you can run through doors, you can run through strongholds. Not so with chariots. Chariots were to catch people who were fleeing on foot. So chariots were to chase down people after the battle was won and slaughter them. They were instruments of fear. It was as if King Jabin was saying, you can run if you want to, but we'll catch you and we'll slaughter you. Can you imagine what the Israelites felt in that moment? They have warfare, modern technology we don't have, and if we run, they will catch us in the Jezreel Valley. Now, is that not the same way it works with our sin? No matter how fast that you run from your sin, you can never outrun the judgment of God that will follow. Because the chariots represented God's immediate judgment upon Israel. So if you're here thinking, well, God will ignore my sin, or I can get away from it, you cannot. There is no sin that will escape the wrath of God. You can't run from sin. You have to meet sin head on. And that's exactly what God did for Israel. And that's exactly what he did for you. So let's continue. They cried out to the Lord. Verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess. Now Deborah means bee. 
I don't know what the spiritual impact of that is. Just know her name means bee, like the honeybee. She's a prophetess of the wife of Lapidoth. Now, if you're thinking, well, I don't know a lot of female prophets. You're not alone. You might be thinking that of Miriam, the relative of, of Moses, who was a prophet. Or, or some of you are thinking, I, I remember Hulda. Remember Hulda? Just trust me, she was a prophetess. Some of you are thinking of Anna in the New Testament. You remember Anna at the temple who, who blessed Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that, by the way? Can you imagine being a prophet of God and you have the Messiah maybe in your hands and you're prophesying over the Messiah saying, Lord, I've waited my whole life for this and now I get to bless this child that you've already blessed? She's a prophetess. She's a female prophetess. She's a female in a day where females have no voice. And God raising someone that has no voice in the ancient world saying, I will give her a voice. And how often does God use the marginalized and the downpressed for his purposes? It's the reminder here that salvation comes from the most unexpected places, doesn't it? Who would have guessed that Deborah would have been the place where God raises up his salvation? And so Deborah, we see the prophetess in verse 5, she's sitting under the palm tree. So we have King Yabin sitting on the throne, but that's not where salvation comes from. Salvation comes from the lady who's sitting down under the palm tree. And what I love about Deborah, she's not in Shiloh and she's not at Bethel. We see in verse 5 that she's sitting between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now if you're thinking, I have no clue where that is, it's okay, I'll tell you. She's in a central location. She's really sitting in a place where any Israelite could go and hear her wisdom. And I believe in Deborah. We have a reminder that God's grace is accessible to any person who comes. Deborah was saying to the Israelites, I don't care who you are or where you live. You can come and you can find wisdom from God. Don't go to the throne. Go to the palm tree, right? Because salvation comes in unlikely places. But the Lord's salvation is open to anyone who comes by faith. Don't take my word for it. Ask Evan, who gave his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized today. He was baptized because he wants you to know that God's grace is open to all who believe by faith. This salvation can be yours and we see now in verse 6 that Deborah who's sitting under the palm tree between Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim she summons Barak Barak son of if you want to if you want to know what Barak it is he's actually son of Abinoam if you say well okay I know two Abinoams which one well it's the one in Kadesh and Naphtali don't you remember Barak's name means lightning. So you think, right? God is raising up this lightning bolt. This is going to be our deliverer. This is going to be our hero. And God says, no, 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 no. Salvation is going to come from this prophetess who's sitting under a tree. Because salvation comes from the, un, the most unlikely of places. And God begins to work. 
It's interesting that, that Israel and Canaan were, were worshiping the God of Baal. Now, what does Barak's name mean again? Before he's... Lightning. So the, the king of, the God of Canaan was Baal. And he's pictured often in ancient relics, sitting or standing. And in one hand, he has a club of thunder. And in the other hand, he has a spear of lightning. So God is raising up a, a hero, sort of, named Lightning to defeat the God of Lightning. And as we sang earlier, God is showing the world he is the only true God. God is saying, Baal is not a God. Don't rely on him. There is only one true God, Yahweh, the one who said, I am who I am. The one who created the heavens and the earth. The one who created the lightning. So God raises up this young man. Salvation comes from the most unexpected places. So let's pause. Catch your breath. Here is what we know. Somewhere in this conversation with Deborah and Barak, Barak has understood that God, Yahweh, has called him up and raised him up to be the deliverer in set for such a time as this. Apparently, he shirks his responsibility, right? And we see that. We know he's supposed to go up to Mount Tabor. Highlight that. We're coming back to that. And so Barak says to Deborah in verse 8, he says to Deborah, I know I'm supposed to go to Mount Tabor and you know all this, but if I will go if you go with me. But if you will not go, then I won't go. So in one sentence, Barak says this. He says, I'll go, but I'll not go. And I can imagine Deborah sitting under her tree in the hill country of Ephraim and, say, and asking, can you say that again? You will go, but you won't go. That doesn't make sense. And, and we see that, that he's reluctant. That's not the best start for a leader, is it? Here is Mr. Lightning going to lead God's people from the God of lightning. And God says, go. And he says, I will, but I won't. Deborah says in verse 9, okay, I will gladly go with you. But you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take. Because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. And we're going to come back to that. But as we look at the rest of the story, I want you to realize this. God accomplishes his perfect purposes through flawed individuals. That gives me such hope. I look at people like Barack and say, God, he, he knew he was called, but he didn't want to go. And he was reluctant. He was struggling. Should I stay? Should I go? If you go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. And what do I do? God accomplishes his perfect purposes through flawed individuals. So if you feel like today, well, God can never use me. You don't know the God that we worship. Because there's not a single person here that God cannot use for his glory. You say, well, I don't want to receive the glory. Good, you're not. It is from him and him alone. And I can't help but think about right now, what is God calling you to do? 
Because I know that God doesn't save us and leave us alone. God doesn't say, save us and say, good luck. Enjoy life. I'll see you in heaven. Check. No, God is constantly speaking to us and he's molding us and he's chastising us and he's disciplining us that we might look like Jesus Christ one day. And so I, I ask you right now, what is God doing and asking of you today? For some of you, maybe that's to give your life to him. Maybe you've never been saved. And you've been in church your whole life and you've heard how God loves you and you know what Jesus Christ did, but you've never taken the step of faith. I believe you're here today to hear the message of good news that Jesus saves. Why not today? Maybe you've been saved and, and you've never showed the world, you've, you've never been baptized. And God is calling you today. This baptism, Evan's baptism was a reminder that you should not be ashamed of your salvation. And God is speaking to you and saying, today is the day. Show the world that I am yours and that you are mine. Maybe for you, that's God's calling you on the mission field. And you're thinking, well, if I did that, my parents wouldn't like it or this, 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 this. Trust God. Trust him. Maybe for you, it's, I, I, God's calling you to pastor or to serve in this church or to share Christ with the neighbor or to pray with your family. I don't know what God is doing in your life today, but I know he's doing something. Do not delay. Do not get stuck in the middle ground. Should I stay or should I go? Have faith and trust God. Because he works his glory through flawed individuals. So... Deborah says, okay, you're not going to get the glory. It's going to go to a woman. This is not her saying to Barak, will you fight like a girl? I'll go. Like this, she's not throwing shade at Barak. Really, the, probably the best understanding of this verse is she is saying to Barak, okay, a non-military person will be getting the, the honor in battle. She's telling Barak, you're going to go fight, but no one in the battle is going to receive the glory. It's going to come from a, not even Deborah, it's going to come from Jael later on. God will receive the glory. And if you think, well, Barak failed, he's, he's a loser. Like why would God raise him up? Well, never forget, in the book of Hebrews, we see Barak again. Do you want to know the rest of the story? Okay, good. Hebrews says this about Barak. Remember Hebrews eleven twelve is the it's the this the hall of fame of faith. Moses, Abraham, uh, Elijah, and in this the writer of Hebrews says eleven thirty two. What more can I say? Time is too short to tell me about to tell you about Gideon or Barak. You remember the one who didn't want to go fight because he was he was on the fence? Yeah, that Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David, King David, Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. You know what Barak is known for? Did you hear what the Hebrew said? He is known by his faith. And if you are here and you look at your life and you say, God, I have shipwrecked my life. God is saying to us, if you give your faith to me through Jesus Christ, you will win my approval. 
Barak had a million failures that he could be known for, but he is known by his faith. I'm thankful for a God who knows us by our faith, not our failures. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Be known as a man of faith. Now let's go back to the battle. Verse 12. So they go to Mount Tabor, which is, if you go to Israel, it's the best place in Israel today for paragliding. I don't know the spiritual significance of that. Maybe God's calling some of you to be professional paragliders. But if you want to, that's the location. It's on Mount Tabor. Verse 12, it was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all 900 chariots, iron, and all the troops who were with him from Harashet of the nations to the Wadi Kishon. Wadi just means a small brook. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day that the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Right? Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So you can see Deborah again saying, come on, man. This is twice. In verse 6 and verse 14. Hasn't God told you to trust him? Go up on the mountain because he's not receiving the honor. It's going to go to a woman. Actually, it's going to go to where it should be. It's going to go to Yahweh himself. So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord threw Sisera, all of his chariots, and all of his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and he fled on foot. Now isn't that interesting? When we started this, Israel was terrified because they couldn't run away from the chariots. And now at the end of the story, we have this mercenary fleeing on foot because the chariots are no good. Victory belongs to Yahweh. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harashet of the nations. And the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera fled. I'm not going to read the rest of this. But go home and read it. Don't read it before bed because it's kind, of, it's kind of scary. He goes to a tent of a lady named Jael and she kills him. She gives him some milk, he goes to sleep and she kills him. I don't know the spiritual significance of that. Just be careful. That's all I got to say. If someone gives you milk tonight before bed, don't drink it. Don't drink it. So go home and read that story and see how God gives you the glory and the honor. But here's what's important for our message today. Barak goes to Mount Tabor. The people flee. They're coming up. Barak's people are coming down. Where does victory happen? So, so literally, God sends confusion in the valley, right? In the valley of Jezreel with all the chariots. God confuses them. And it's the word. Anytime God routes his enemies in the Old Testament, that's the phrase. God confused the enemy. But I would argue that battle, the, the victory was not won in the valley. Victory was won on Mount Tabor when Barak was obedient to Yahweh. And it's a reminder, church, spiritual battles are never won from the earth up. They're always won from heaven down. They're always won from God down, not us up. Now here's where things get interesting. 1,500 years later, really 1,250 years later, Jesus Christ does something with his disciples. And I want to read this. It's in the book...
of Matthew chapter 17. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and he leads them up on a high mountain. I'll give you one guess which mountain that is. Mount Tabor. That's a traditional site. Can't prove it, but if we had to pick a mountain, that's the mountain. Verse 2. He was transfigured in front of them on that mountain. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I will, I will build shelters here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And a voice said from the cloud. Now listen to this. This is God the Father speaking from the cloud on Mount Tabor to his only son, Jesus. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this voice, they fell face down and were terrified. On Mount Tabor, Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples so that they would believe by faith. It was on Mount Tabor that God revealed himself to Barak. And he confused the enemy. Later, Jesus would reveal himself in his glory on a cross. A cursed instrument. It was a Roman instrument of, of sin and death and criminal activity. But Jesus went to the cross because there was no other way. There was no other way for us to be in the presence and to be reconciled with the Father. Remember, I I said that the Israelites could not run fast enough to flee the judgment of the chariots. And you cannot run fast enough to flee the judgment of your sin. You have to meet sin face to face. And on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did for you. Jesus said, Josh, don't run away from your sin. Run to the cross because I have addressed it once and for all. And we see in Deborah, this humble lady sitting under a tree in the hill country of Ephraim, that salvation is found in the unlikely of places. What if I told you that salvation is found on a cross? What if I told you that salvation was found in a cradle? In a place where there was no room for the Son of God. What if I told you that salvation was found in a graveyard? But the graveyard didn't have a body in the tomb because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Think about this good news. Think about our Christian framework that we say salvation is found in a cradle, it's found on a cross. And it's found in an empty tomb. And church, I believe that salvation to this day is still found in those places. You cannot flee from your sin. But you can meet it face to face. Because Jesus paid the price for you.
And I'm reminded in Barak's life that he's remembered in the New Testament. Not by being wishy-washy, not by being faithless, but he's, rem- he's remembered for his faith. This is what Ephesians says. That you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourself, it's the gift of God so that no man may boast. And I believe we have a lot of Baraks in this place, don't we? Men and women who have failed over and over and over again. You read verse 1 and you say, Josh again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You said, that's my life. Stuck on repeat with a little infinity sign. But God said, but Josh, if you, give, if you trust me by faith, you will be known and you will be approved because Jesus can make you right. See, Christians are not known by what they do. They're known by what he did. You're not saved by what you do. God's not saving you today because you're here. He saves you because Jesus took your place on the cross and forgave you of your sins. So we don't live for victory as a Christian. We live from victory. That's the hope that we have. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, would today be the day where you are known by faith? Where you would say for the first time, God, I believe for the first time that salvation is not found in my strength or my hands or my, my religious upkeep. God, I believe today that salvation is found in a cradle. And it was found on a cross. And it was found in an empty tomb. Because you took my place. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, know that you can do that by faith. You say, well, how do I do that? It's called prayer. Prayer is simply pouring out your heart to God. And you can pray a prayer like this. God, I know that I've failed. But I thank you that you work your purposes out through flawed individuals. God, save me. Meet my sin Head on today. Forgive me. I believe in your son Jesus. Amen. And if you do that with authentic faith, God says in his word, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what he did for you. Come to Jesus. Run to him. If you've fallen on your face this week and you say, well, I have failed again and again and again, would you get a fresh start today? Would you pour out your heart to God and say, God, again, restore me. Heal me, Father. With the promises that He will. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us. And maybe you're the Barack that you're stuck on the fence. You're saying, I want to do for God and I don't want to do. I will go and I won't go. Would today be the day where you get off the fence? Maybe God's calling you to intercede for someone else. Maybe he's calling you to get baptized. Maybe he's calling you to go around the world to, sh- to share the name of Jesus. Or to go in the next cubicle and share the name of Jesus. But may we leave here saying, God, we're tired of being on the fence. You are worth it. I'm thankful.
that God uses flawed individuals to accomplish his eternal purposes. Until we take our final breath, church, he is not through with you yet. And I know he is working today. And may we respond to the call of his grace upon our life. Let's pray.